I want to welcome all of you to our weekly session of uh, Critical Issues Confronting China. We are so fortunate today to have with us, coming from Singapore, uh, uh, through the uh, technology of Zoom, uh, one of the greatest uh, China historians, uh, Wang Gungwu. Uh, he has a long relation with us here in Cambridge. John Fairbank discovered him uh, way back uh, in the 1960s when he was writing Chinese World Order. And he, uh, somebody recommended this very bright young scholar who had gotten his PhD in London, Lund School of Economics, who was writing on the Ming in the relation with Southeast Asia. So John Fairbank brought this very young scholar uh, into his uh, very uh, early volume on the Chinese world order uh, by Wang Gungwu. <clears throat> Wang Gungwu has a very unusual background. He grew up in Igbo, Malaysia. In the 1920s, mainland China decided they wanted to have uh, a better uh, Chinese education for some of the uh, overseas uh, Chinese. And the, so they sent to Igbo uh, a uh, fine scholar who was completely steeped in the Chinese tradition. That was Wang Gungwu's father. So he was the principal of the school to educate Chinese Malaysians. And Gungwu had the privilege of uh, being uh, tutored by his father at a very young age and having a depth of a classical Chinese education uh, that was way before uh, any of the, us in the West could have uh, such a comparable education. And then when he finished uh, that, after uh, a few years later, uh, he uh, went to Zhang University. Uh, that was the university in, uh, that later became Nanjing University. And it was a place just at the end of the Civil War when a lot of the bright young people who later became leaders uh, in mainland China and Taiwan were studying uh, at the same time as Gong Wu. Uh, and uh, then uh, after that, uh, Gong Wu went to London where he got his uh, PhD. Uh, and he's had an extraordinarily uh, distinguished career. Uh, and then he just uh, a day or two ago in Singapore <clears throat> uh, accepted the celebration of uh, the new book uh, which is, uh, here is uh, uh, my home is, home did this with his uh, long life for over 60 years, Margaret, who unfortunately just passed away shortly before the book came out. So just a couple of nights ago, uh, Gung Wu in Singapore uh, was celebrated uh, by all the people who appreciated uh, what he had done. Uh, He's, uh, and not only his home where we are, but everybody wanted him. Uh, he spent 18 years in Australia uh, and became the uh, uh, director of the research school of Pacific and Asian studies in Australia. And they want to claim him. Of course, England wants to claim him. Uh, we would love to claim him in the United States. And in Hong Kong, uh, after uh, Indonesia, he became uh, the vice chancellor of Hong Kong University for nine years, and in effect the president of uh, 
Hong Kong University. And that's one you brought him to Singapore. Where in addition to holding various jobs, I think of him as the sage wise counselor of the smartest uh, politician in the world, political leader in the world. And that's a position that Wang Gungwu held. Uh, and uh, he also then became, among other things, the chairman of the board of the Lee Guan Yu School. I don't want to take any more time. Uh, we're so fortunate that uh, Wang Gungwu is uh, willing to address us as a historian who thinks, who's had real uh, experience in the real world, and uh, to have him help think about how the Chinese tradition is, sh is shaping the future. So without taking any more of your time, come with yours. Thank you so much for coming. Ezra, if I might also jump in and just say, anybody who wants to ask questions, we will do questions at the end. There's a Q&A tab in the bottom that you can enter your questions in. You can enter them anonymously if you wish. Um, if not, um, please identify yourself, your name, your affiliation, so we know who's asking the question. And with that, we really will turn it over to Gungwu. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Israel is uh, concentrated on my past, uh, studying the classics and Chinese literature from my father. But I have to start with one small point, and it, my father was not interested in history. And, paid no attention to history. So my history education is actually very much a product of a, a British colonial university, University of Malaya in Singapore. And after that in London and so as, and then ever since then I've worked in history departments, which are really of the West Anglo-American Anglo tradition, you might say, certainly the British Commonwealth tradition of history departments. So my history training is very much, much more conventional um, more like the history training that uh, most uh, American or European uh, students would have got. Uh, so I came to history the wrong, the wrong way around, so to speak, not from within China, within my uh, father's uh, kind of framework. Although he, of course, teaching the classics and literature, there's always something about history, but he never taught me what the Chinese thought about history or what they really did with their history. So that I came, as it were, round, roundabout way uh, from, from the kind of history training I received from a Western university. So I came, to, so for me, learning about Chinese history was a kind of voyage of discovery. I was discovering what it was like to think in Chinese historical terms, which was sort of very different from what I was trained to, to look at. At least that's how I found it. I found it strange. I, it took a while for me to grasp it, but there were certain obvious things. Why I want to start with that is because what I, meant, what I mean by political heritage is very much the heritage of the historical state in China. How the politics of power, wealth, of defense, war, empires, all that rooted in their Chinese view of what the past might mean. And uh, there are interesting differences, which I discovered for myself. I don't know that they are necessarily the key to it, but this is how I, I see it. So when I talk about political heritage, I have to go back to my own historical experience of discovering how the Chinese start with certain different premises about the past, which were different from mine. To begin with, for example, we, uh, we are accustomed to, we take for granted the linear nature of history. Certainly uh, the idea of a distant past, an ancient 
or the medieval or modern and contemporary, all these are modern terms. And we have a time span in that, which suggests that things move from distant past gradually towards us. And each step of the way is meaningful that those events that are nearer to us must be more important than those that are further away. And that is a, that's what I mean by my understanding of a linear approach to history. When I learned about the Chinese cyclical view of dynastic history and so on, I found it strange, but I tried to understand what it, what it meant for the Chinese. And of course, it's very obvious that they do not think in linear terms at all. It doesn't terribly matter how distant the period is. To them, what's important is that, what is that to learn from the history? The moral lesson, the political lesson, probably even more important than the moral lesson. How does, how does a state flourish? How does it survive when they're attacked and how it can rise again after having fallen? And these are the lessons that are much more important to them. And they look upon that each period of history could, as it were, stand by itself and be treated as equidistant from, from our own times. And, uh, and it depends on what lesson you want to learn. What is it about that past that might become useful to you or meaningful to you and help you deal with the present? And therefore, the linear part uh, did not interest them a great deal. They were, in fact, when I heard the Chinese historians talk in terms the Han and the Tang or the Song and the Ming, very often as if they were equidistant from us, I, I really, it really took me a while to grasp what that could mean to the way they thought about their heritage. And so it is in that context that I came to the idea that uh, Dealing with the past is so crucial to the nature of the Chinese state and the way it de dealt with its, with its problems internally and externally. I mean, the fact was uh, internally, it was uh, very much a continental civilization. The state was developed in the central part of a great, great river valley system, very distant from the sea and very far, very far away also from the deserts and the steppes of, the, of our Central Asia. So somewhere in between in these great river valleys, uh, especially the Yellow River, this civilization began and it took on the neighboring uh, areas, uh, mainly those which are still very much related, very dependent on agriculture, what they call the land, the zone areas of, uh, of uh, the great river valleys. And, increasingly distinctive, uh, different from the steppe lands and the kind of nomadic life and the husbandry of the Central Asia and North Asian plains. So from the beginning, their, history, their past was couched in those terms. A continental power of, of great wealth and uh, developing high standards of literacy and, uh, uh, and moral values and ideas of the state and the relationship between the state and its, its, uh, its citizens and people, all that was conceived entirely in that framework. And the enemies out there outside were people who were nomadic, freely roaming the great steppe lands and plains and deserts of uh, Central and North Asia, but constantly threatening to the, to the uh, agricultural area. And this was, it was cyclical, it was always happening. It happened again and again, back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes the, uh, the steppe lands won and invaded China and took over. Other times the uh, 
agricultural peasantry basically were pushed back with the state organizing its own uh, uh, powerful defenses and so on. And the idea of being back and forth, the rise and fall, or the fall and then rise again of all these, uh, all, all these uh, successive dynasties created the basis of their understanding of world, of, world, of, the, of their world, uh, the world as they understood, uh, a world order as they understood it, if you could call it the order. So they took that as the given, that is their norm. Now being trained in the, um, in, in the West, uh, I had a completely different uh, view, as probably you're familiar with more than, more than I am, and that is, it's very much a, a civilization arising out of an area that was both land and sea. I call it the Mediterranean, it's a nice word, it's, it is Mediterranean between land and sea, and it was a mixture of different cultures, cultures which depend on the sea, and cultures which depend on the land. It had them both, and they mixed, they fought, they did develop ideas of city-states, develop ideas of empires, and they fought over all kinds of things, including about God, God and gods, as it were. And that, in the end, became an extraordinary mixture of a, a very secular, multi-god kind of background with ultimately a monotheistic background, which dominated and eventually conquered the minds and spirits of of most of the people in that area. And it was a battle of that kind, a battle of ideas at one level, battle of land and sea fighting for supremacy, uh, which uh, always involved, and this is the crucial point, always involved the sea. It was never far away from the sea, and always drawn by the Mediterranean towards that. And of course, it was also equally threatened from the, the hordes, as it were, of the Central Asian nomadic peoples who from time to time also pushed towards them, but they were further away and they were not so, they were not so threatening most of the time. Occasionally, as, like, as with the Mongols and the, the Huns, the Mongols, the Turks and so on, but not as consistently as with the Chinese civilization. So their, ultimately their linear approach really sprang from their one God idea. It was that one God that provided them with a very clear line between, as it were, the origins in the beginning and then towards the day of salvation when everything would come to a fantastic, glorious end and all that would be understood in, in the linear terms. It's a, 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 the path towards a, 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 wonderful, a wonderful future. And that, I think, linear approach uh, in the sense of timing and so on uh, derives from the ultimate victory of the ideational part of the, uh, of the uh, monotheistic uh, faith. But of course, at its base, there were still the, the many gods that became secular and the Greco-Roman uh, aspect of it, which ultimately merged the two together so that they had, as it were, a, 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 a kind of mix, which was extremely fruitful, very, very dangerous and very destructive at the same time, but nevertheless, in the course of fighting and so on, they develop a, a, a very distinctive uh, civilization and which was fundamentally transformed by what you call the Renaissance, the return of the classical traditions of uh, the Greco-Roman traditions, which were, it actually took over, as it were, from the spiritual side of the, of the monotheistic uh, heritage. And the combination 
was what created your, the modern world as we know it. Now, that's my understanding of the alternative from which I think America today, Western Europe, uh, derives its, uh, its strength, its spiritual strength, as well as its military strength. That maritime part, which was extended, was of course brought about by the fact that they failed on land. They could not really get across to uh, Central Asia. They were blocked by their rivals. And the, the, the fact that you were divided between at least two major monotheistic religions that saw each other as dangerous uh, uh, enemies and, and fought each other virtually to a standstill and still there after nearly 1500 years, still a division which, uh, which uh, the whole world continues to, to have to pay attention to. And you, you, you too in the West have to continue to pay attention to. Now that, all that is, called, is really foreign to the Chinese mind. They've had nothing to do with that. And uh, when they came across it, as it were, to, today, they were attracted by it. And the reason for this is my next point. What do I mean by future progress? It, future progress is sort of a, you know, oxymoron in a sense. Of course, progress means progress towards the future. That's the underlying assumption. But the future progress that I want to emphasize is how it struck the Chinese. Because throughout this, all that dynastics, cyclical, approach towards the past, they never really thought in terms of progress. At least the idea of progress, I cannot find anywhere in the Chinese classical tradition. In fact, if anything, they always look to a glorious past, the, the golden age, as it were, from which we have uh, deteriorated, and we must constantly try to revise it or return to that glorious past. At least that is how it's the rhetoric. In fact, of course, it's not, not anything like that, but that was a rhetoric. But today, what we have is that the Chinese, in its contacts with the West, among the many things it learned from the West, the most important ideational thing, I think, is the idea of progress. All the other things, it seemed to me, are, in a way, to do with what, science, technology, economic development, wealth creation, capitalism, industrialism, all that, in a way, byproducts of this idea of progress. And you, you really have to trace it back to the enlightenment. And if you trace it further back, it, it has to go back to the beginnings with the Renaissance, with the idea of science and how science, the scientific revolution and how science led on to, to technological changes that made the industrial capitalism possible. Now all that flowed from that. And during the enlightenment in the 18th century, the idea of progress took, took uh, precedent over everything else. With the debates between ancient and modern, as it were, the modern won over, and ancient became less and less, as it were, significant, except to precedence, a little bit to show why the modern is so important and why the modern has some way to go. And, and the direction that, of course, people argue about that, and you have many, many schools of thought. And the Chinese took the idea of progress very seriously. It started in the early days with uh, people translating from, uh, as uh, Ben Schwartz uh, did long ago, in search of wealth and power, the Yemfus, uh, in a way, celebration of this idea that we was getting from uh, Darwinism, social Darwinism, and bringing it to China. And that, of course, took off in the, in the Chinese imagination. And when this whole system collapsed, when the Confucian state collapsed, what they looked to was the kind of Republican capitalist system that was developed in the West with such great success 
leading to the great national empires that virtually conquered the world, and in fact globalized the world, uh, particularly through maritime power. And all that was brought together in their minds and connected to the fact that the West had developed the idea of progress. So the idea of progress, I think, caught their imagination. And in fact, right across the board, in fact, I, I think uh, most Chinese, especially those who have gone to school, modern schools, had any education at all, would, would have been very much attracted to this idea and actually firmly believe that this is, the, this is the future. So I say, I call it future progress to underline the fact they link this idea of progress, which is material progress, of course, which can be measured, which can be seen, quantified and so on as their future. And this is why I have uh, suggested in my latest book on China Reconnects, why they have actually uh, brought back the sage that they have decided to sage that would not take the place, but complement the sage of Confucius that they still recognize, they, they do not deny that, they still recognize, but they link Karl Marx as the sage of progress because it was Karl Marx who in their terms scientifically developed the idea of progress as a clear set of stages, which are very clear. Marx out, draws out the road, the path towards the future. That future may be uh, utopian or otherwise, uh, that doesn't terribly matter. The fact is that the future now is what it means. The past then takes a different shape and meaning for, for the Chinese mind. Why they have also not, not only not discarded the past, but actually turn around to say, maybe the past is not that irrelevant after all. The past may not have understood the idea of progress, but the past provided them with a stable, a sense of security, a sense of continuity, and a sense that you may succeed and fail, you may fall, but you will rise again. And this can happen again and again, provided you believe that you can rise again. The fall is never forever. We're not like those ancient civilizations that once fallen belong to museums and thereafter can be forgotten, written about with great uh, pleasure and enjoyment, but not relevant to the present. China's past is different. It is alive, it is meaningful to us, and we have much to learn from it. And it's not just represented by Confucius. Confucius simply is a symbolic figure to remind us that that past is important. That past actually comes from the way it records the experiences of all the various centralized bureaucratic states that have survived, fallen, and risen again at least four times in the last 2000 years. And in that context, the, 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 those records of the experiences of those states that rose and fell and then rose again after having fallen. And in fact, even after a terrible fall, like for example, the end of, at the, end of the Song Dynasty, uh, the complete com conquest of Mongols, never, the Chinese had never experienced that before. No corner of China was not part of the Mongol Empire. Now, that was un unprecedented. They didn't know how to explain that. Of course, what they did was, ultimately, they couldn't explain it, but they simply incorporated Yuan history into that dynastic system and to enable them to fit in into the continuities that they understood and would provide them with a sense of security 
about how the past is always meaningful to, has, has always been meaningful to them and will continue to be meaningful to them. What the break that came that caused them, in, in fact, considerable difficulty with dealing with this past was in fact, when they, at the beginning of the 20th century, a group of historians in China agreed and completely accepted that modern history for China began in 1840s, began with the Opium War, the opening of China to the West. That decision, I don't, I can't, I can't find out exactly who started it all and how it, uh, how it got, got fixed, but it was fixed by, 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 by the May 4th movement. It was already generally accepted. And certainly in the 1920s and 30s, when the rivalry between the nationalists and the communists turned into a civil war, both sides completely agreed, among the historians on both sides, completely agreed that modern history began in the 1840s. And that was fine, because having accepted that, they started to rewrite their history accordingly. You, then you have you have modern history of China, and all starting about 1840s, thereabouts. And that went quite well. It fitted in into the, when the nationalists fell and the uh, Anglo-American historiographical tradition, Western historiographical tradition was abandoned and they turned to Marxist, uh, Leninist, uh, Stalinist historic historiography. And they rewrote history again in a different sort of framework. When they did that, they still maintained that modern history began um, in the, in the 1840, they, they may blur it a little bit about how where capitalism began and uh, included parts of as it were, the 18th century in their explanation. But ultimately, they were accepting that modern history began in 1840s. Now that created a big problem in the end. Problem for them because as uh, as those Harvard would be very familiar with that. As those and this is only an example. There are many other any many other challenges to this approach. Uh, in fact, from the very beginning, as it were, when uh, people like Paul Cohen, uh, Philip Kuhn and others were questioning the Fairbank uh, uh, challenge and response, they're already referring to a date to the earlier and which cannot be quite fitted into this modern period called starting from 1840. And the internal as your dynamics of, of Chinese past was functioning under the surface of Western uh, imperialism. All that, of course, they, they took into account. But the fact that you were able to show through your reinterpretation of Qing history that something was missing in their Chinese history writing, whether it was under the nationalists or under the communists, something was missing by having abandoned the, the dynastic histories. I, I think you all are familiar with the fact that the, the Manchu loyalists did try to write a Qing history, turned out to be a draft history. And the Kuomintang also tried to write Qing history, but never really quite convinced themselves or anybody else that they could get it right. And interestingly enough, uh, about 20 years ago, people like Dai Yi in the Ramin Dashue and so on, uh, got on a big team to rewrite the whole of Qing history, which if they spent the last 20 years, I believe there are hundreds of historians involved in this to try and uh, to rewrite re re Qing history. Now, is it simply just a, historical interest and or curiosity only to academics or, 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 or something more than that. Now, I actually have come to the conclusion that the difficulty they have with the Qing history and the idea of modern history starting 1840 has caught them into, got them into a, a very a big, um, you might say, 
a, a paradoxical situation where they can't quite explain the continuities of, his, of Chinese history uh, clearly or, uh, or accept in an, any accepted way uh, that, that everybody could agree on unless they can sort this one out. Now, this may not happen, it may take a long while. But what I think has happened in the last few decades, particularly since the Deng, Deng Xiaoping reforms, in the attempt to, on the one hand, abandon the straightforward Leninism, Stalinist historiography, abandoning that, and then learning from the historiography that has been developed by the, uh, in the mainstream historiography of the West, apparently, uh, ultimately Eurocentric in its origins, but nevertheless universalized by the modern historians. Taking all that, and yet at the same time, wondering how to merge them, how to bring the sense of continuity into that story without this filling this gap between the end of the main and the 1840s. I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying, but there's, there was a, a, a really difficult question that was left unanswered in the Chinese minds. Now, the West has no problem with that. For historians, and some of your work has been fantastically creative and extraordinarily eye-opening, and they have been, they are actually in accordance with their linear history. They have actually done it in that context, and therefore the whole rhetoric, the whole language of history writing has been couched in those terms the, uh, the universalist terms that modern historiography, as we, as we know it today, accepts. And the Chinese have found that to be a very difficult proposition when it comes to that Ming Qing period. And uh, I, I, I'm giving you this as an example. There are many other things. Crucially, and it is, this I think is the turning point, the recognition that during the period from about 1949 to 1990s or up to about 2000, they really did not know how to handle the past, even the immediate past of 1840s to the, to the present. And the fact that they did not want simply to see it as complete breaks with the Qing and the dynastic Confucian state, and then complete break with the liberal nationalists or pseudo illiberal nationalist Kuomintang uh, period, and then to go and to try and explain where the Maoist uh, 40 years or 30, 40 years came from, all that was extremely difficult to explain away or to fit in into any kind of uh, theoretical or ide ideological, ideological uh, frame. And I think in that context, they found it returning to a Chinese sense of continuity with the past to recognize that all that in the past are relevant to, is relevant to what is happening today. And that you need to understand them all as one leading to the other, even as you couch it in linear terms, it has to be couched also at the same time in the context of the people who made the history at the time. So to go back, if you're gonna go back to thousands of years and you claim that this is an ancient civilization with this long past, do we simply say that all that is feudal, as we, they used to call it, feudal and therefore irrelevant and therefore can be set aside or can be read for pleasure and enjoyment and from time to time uh, learn a lesson or two from it, but not really all that important to what is happening today and the future that uh, uh, China 
and has a head of it. If you do that, something is missing. That's, that's I believe, how most uh, the Chinese have been feeling all this while. And you can see that in those, even some of those contemporary political scientists in China, when they're talking about the politics, the state in China today, all about international relations, how often they go back to look at the warring states, look at the beginnings of the Qinhan period, and, and go back because they, they find themselves unable to explain a lot of things that are happening in China without referring to all those developments in the past from which they still feel there are lessons for the Chinese people today. Now that sense intangible, I can't, I can't pin it down. I can't say for certain where it comes from and why it is so persistent and why it is so strong in fact, and why it is being restored and encouraged today. And I don't think it's only nationalism, it's more than that. It is almost a spiritual uh, need uh, an emptiness that needs to be filled. I, I got the sense from the fact that at the end of uh, at the end of Mao Zedong's period, when he had succeeded in turning away from the past, at least openly, destroying everything from the past, the, the literati traditions, all the Confucian temples and all the historical remains of the past to try and have a fresh start and be continuously revolutionary. While he was doing that, he was also rejecting the West, even the heretical West of uh, Soviet Russia, they're not just re rejecting the liberal bourgeoisie capitalist West, they're also rejecting the heterodox or the heretical uh, Soviet West. And having done that, if you reject your own past, the immediate past of the Soviet uh, period, and then the earlier past of the liberal nationalist or, or capitalist period, a bourgeoisie period, what have you got left? And I think this, this left the, uh, at, at the beginning of the Deng Xiaoping reforms, left the historians as they came out of their, out of their sheds and their, their hideouts and tried to write their history again. And when they turned to the West to try and catch up with the historical writings that, that had been, uh, good, put, been making progress over the last few decades, decades as they cut up with the social sciences and all the other things that have added and enriched the historical field and, and generally made historiography much more sophisticated. As they're learning all that, they realize that they cannot do away with the long historical past. They have, they have to use that to try and understand where they are coming, where they're coming from and what sense of direction would they have about the future. Again, I'm simplifying in the brief period, I, few minutes, few minutes I have, that I, I would simply say that this is where the political heritage and the idea of progress or future progress uh, underlying the future part is coming together in order to make the whole story of China meaningful. In fact, to try and define what is China. I mean, a question which um, many of you are familiar with, and this is not a question only in the West, you can now very seriously argued in, in China. All this, of course, has created a new sense of the past. If you don't know enough about the past, what do you know about China? What is China? And in fact, for Chinese, the word China doesn't actually exist or is very meaningful. I remember having a great deal of trouble trying to translate the word China into Chinese. I mean, there are so many ways you can do that. And among the most, of course, common today is Zhongguo, 
But that is probably the most misleading of all. I mean, Jungbo has got so many layers of meaning that I have difficulty myself being sure what I mean by Jungbo at any one point. And certainly one thing is quite clear. If you use the modern rhetoric of universal uh, his, history as take a mainstream history, then Zhongguo today or Zhongguo Ren today, meaning a Chinese, must be from the borders of a country or nation, define a United Nations as a nation, with the borders of China, of the People's Republic of China. Unless you belong to the People's Republic of China, you really are not Zhongguo. And, and, and indeed, politically, as you can see in the debates between Liang An and, uh, and uh, Taiwan historians and historians in China, they have to, they, they, they have problems with the word Zhongguo. Uh, these are similar sort of background to it. So even with uh, translating as Zhongguo, and that's so new. I mean, I was, I was actually, when I was learning about modern Chinese history, I was so struck by the fact that we use the word Zhongguo really for the first time in, right at the end of the 19th century and largely because of influence from Japanese historiography of China that we finally brought to the fore books which have titled Zhongguo something. And for example, one of the first things that caught my mind and a book that influenced me a great deal was uh, uh, Liu Yizhang's Zhongguo uh, Wenmingshi and there were three volumes of it. And then you call it Chinese civilization. Zhongguo Wenmingshi is not the Shi of all those dynasties or how they went up and down because they, each, each dynasty had its own uh, emphasis and different stresses on different parts of, of what was glorious. But now it's called Zhongguo Wenmingshi with a continuity from way back to Xia Shangzhou down to the present. And I, I remember the word Zhongguo, that was when it caught my attention. Zhongguo applied all the way back. It's always been Zhongguo. And uh, that uh, raised a question mark in my mind. And I, I confess, I've been so swinging back and forth of whether or not to use, when and where to use Zhongguo when I mean China. So that, that, that illustrates some of the problems that, that some of the dilemmas that modern Chinese face. But to come back to finalize just the last few minutes, just to say that this idea of the heritage, the political, I emphasize the political heritage because that's where the state, the history of that state and how that dominates the minds of all, think all the thinkers and the lit literate people of China remains a very powerful factor today. And how it is linked to the future because it's, it's to them the most brilliant idea of that there should be progress. And there's no question of a golden age. Things will be better in the future than in the past has caught the imagination of every Chinese. And the fact that science and technology, material progress as measured in wealth and ultimately through wealth to power, all that is all linked together with the idea of progress makes it even more important. It isn't just a brilliant idea. It is a reality that we must aim for. That progress must be ensured so that China will always be better than it is today. And to be better than it is today is something that is worthwhile at all costs. Now, what really uh, is, is a crucial part is that when you believe in that idea of progress, how do you deal with the past? And this is, I think, uh, what is now engaging a lot of Chinese writers, thinkers in China today. And they want to enable the people of China 
And of course, the Chinese state already, already assumes that to be a desirable uh, goal, but to enable the people of China to reimagine the whole of China contained or at least explained in terms of this continuity from this, what I call the deep rooted past and reconnect it with a new world order in which there will be progress. But this progress is not a, it's not a fixed thing. Incidentally, this is also an, another thing which I think is, is important to bear in mind. The idea of progress is linked to the idea of change. The Chinese have always believed in change, but change need not be linear. It could be cyclical, but again, nevertheless, there will always be change and you must always be prepared to change, adapt, rethink what to do. The future is even more so, that there will be change. You do not know what changes will come necessarily. You hope certain things will occur, certain things might not, will not occur or recur, but you know that there will be change. Change is inevitable, it's the norm, and we must be constantly ready to deal with change. And when change occurs and you see the change, then you must be prepared to rethink what to do, rearrange things, nothing is fixed. Everything can be as if were renegotiated when you, when you recognize that conditions have changed. But when you link up that fundamental idea that the Chinese have with the idea of progress, you can see how that is driving the Chinese today. It, on the one hand, a sense of that will get, become better, but at the same time, recognizing that it's not a, it's as a moving target. It's continually moved and you constantly got to adjust to it and make preparations for change and be prepared whatever change occurs you must be prepared to deal with it. And this I think is, is, is governing the whole thing. And I think this is what is shaping what I call the China challenge to the West, particularly and of course, specifically to the United States today. And that is that United States would like to believe that they have set up a global world order, which is if not ideal, but as good as you can be. And they did that out of wars maybe, very un, very cruel, terrible wars. But after that, they had learned from it. And they've helped the world to understand this ideal global order, which we should, we should do our best to sustain, maintain, protect, defend against possible enemies and rivals and competitors and so on. And I think this part is where the, the, the tension begins. When one decides that this is it, and you must all conform to it, or at least uh, accept it as being the standard by which we should all behave and thereafter keep it, keep it that way so that we can keep the peace in the world. And those whom they see as people who say, hang on, there will be change surely. And when things change and conditions change, we must be prepared to change accordingly. In other words, things are man-made. It's all done by us as human beings through states, through armies, navies, through wealth, through capital, capital, corporate, corporate power, whatever it is, but we, we bring about change. Science and technology changes all the time. And as we change, we must be ready to reconsider, rethink the home framework, or for that matter, rethink the new world order if and when necessary. Now that part I think is, is creating a lot of challenge, lots of difficulty and a lot of tension. And you can see the China challenge comes from the fact that it continues to feel that this is moving target, improving, offering greater and better world to come. And the other side saying, we got there already. We're pretty nearly perfect. 
It's universal. We have discovered the universal values common to all humankind. We all share it. Don't ruin it. Don't spoil it by trying to change anything. Now, this is, again, I simplify, but I want to draw attention to why the China challenge is looked at so seriously by people in America today. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, Gungwu, thank you uh, for that wonderfully broad, uh, deep uh, analysis. One of the things, of course, that we Westerners now worry about is that the Chinese are thinking about uh, progress. And the, the question that a lot of Westerners are wrestling with is, does progress mean that the Chinese progress surpasses that of progress of the West? And... Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about when the Chinese now thinking of progress. Uh, obviously, progress China is is progressing, and um, match China's progress for the rest of the world. I think there are obvious differences. Uh, the, the idea of progress may not be the same, but what is even more striking is that the way of achieving it could be very, very different indeed. And this is where the political heritage comes in. I mean, I, I didn't want to go into that for the West, the, the, herit the political heritage of the West, heritage of the West includes being immersed in the idea of city-states with freedom for citizens, citizenry, that civilization is urban, that it has, it has, uh, it has political, uh, 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 political, uh, relationships which are fundamentally based on the individual individual rights protected by law. All these things have been put together in a very logical and I think a very complete framework which stands by itself. The Chinese are actually outside that framework. They hadn't had the same experiences. Their experiences are just the opposite. If, if anything, they see their experiences in, in terms of being unified, having a strong state which can keep to stay placed together against the marauding enemies, the con constantly threatening this civilization. And that when they're divided, they're almost always taken advantage of. And then they get bits, of pass, bits and pieces get conquered. And from time to time, they get totally conquered. And so it, it, the, the context is so different that you, you get a defensive sense of protecting something. You prepare for war, but you war in order to protect what you have but you don't want to overextend yourself and, and get yourself into unnecessary trouble because in the end, you're just wanting to protect what you have. Whereas the other side of it is a continual division because it is a very strength of, of the Mediterranean uh, political heritage is that out of division, they made progress. It is another side of it. You made progress because you fought each other, became better through fighting each other, better organized, better weaponry, better better, uh, better met methods of, of, of making money and so and to competition, division, continual debates and guaranteeing the rights of people to have the right to, to say this or do that or participate. You've developed a completely different tradition in which of course, on, at the top, you have a single God which looks after everything before which all men are equal. I mean, these are ideals which, Chinese can't understand. I mean, they're in their hierarchical system. This is so alien to their hierarchical system. But in your system, you have taken that for granted that every individual 
is equal before God, at least in, in so most, most of the faiths that I understand from the West. Now, these are so fundamentally different. Now, whether they play a part in the political heritage or not depends on different times and different countries and what role they play. But the kind of competition and rivalry, and ultimately it's more than competition, is deadly rivalry between the two interpretations of God itself has been, uh, has been a major factor in determining the shape of, uh, of Mediterranean history and, and its extensions uh, across the Atlantic and so on. All that has been rooted in something that is based on a historical experience, a set of experiences that are totally alien to the Chinese. And how they can reconcile, how can they understand that and, and incorporate all that into uh, interpretation of Chinese history, I think has foxed them. And they're in a way giving up. And they're now going back to their own understanding of the historical past to help them deal with the future, deal with the kind of progress that they now want for themselves. I, that's, that's about all I can see in, 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 in how the Chinese see it. I don't see them as actually trying to challenge the West. I really don't. I mean, I know it, may, it can be interpreted that way, but in, I, I see that as primarily their way of learning from the West, the science, the technology, the idea of progress. Having learned all that, then the question is, does that now overtake and take over from their own historical continuities and lead them in a direction which is more like yours and into the kind of competitive rival, rivalry that will lead to wars and continued division in order to better yourself. That's the only way you can improve yourself is a fight and debate, as it were. And, and the Chinese fight really, I think, shudder at the thought of that as their future. But, but they don't know what to do. They, they want to catch up, they want progress. They're now doing very well by, by becoming a maritime power because that's, that's what they missed. They found that this, the lack of maritime power was the source of their ultimate destruction, as it were, in the 19th and early 20th century. And then, then we must never make that mistake again. That kind of thinking is now, I think, very, very strong. And they, they have now this, 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 they found out that the whole economic progress of the last few decades depends on this freedom of the seas and the maritime, maritime uh, free, free market economy that is based on maritime access to, to markets and to resources. So what else, what, where, where else can they go? So the Belt and Road Initiative is just a double-headed uh, way of approaching it because they're both continental and maritime. They've got to head both directions. But as they see it, it is to enable them to defend what they've successfully incorporated from the West into this new state capitalist system that they now treasure and believe is a secret of their success. So I, to, to make one final point about this is that I'm not sure that there's any ideological difference between the Chinese and the Americans today. It's not really, I, I know people use the word, I don't think the Chinese use the word much, but may, you use the word, but ultimately now it's a, it's, a, it's a competition of systems. They have developed two systems. One system, both, both of them incidentally uh, derive both these systems that are derived from the industrial capitalism of post-enlightenment West. The Chinese have taken that on, and, but it has taken them on in a different kind of state structure with a different political heritage. And then as a result of which, their idea of, the pro of progress itself is gu gu guided by their the kind of political heritage they have. So their idea of progress itself may also divert from the idea of progress that, 
that, uh, that the Mediterranean civilizations would have. But these are, I think, negotiable positions because if you accept that these are part and parcel of the, the world changing over time and the changes are normal and bound to happen and we must be prepared to renegotiate when change, things change, if that is accepted as a fundamental uh, starting point, then of course, everything is manageable. But if, that, if they don't, and the system say it's either this or that, then of course. But I think the Chinese are not saying it, it's got to be our system. But they are saying is that respect our way of doing things. We understand the new global order. Is, it has to be capitalistic with some socialist goal in the sense of sharing, being fair, being equitable in some abstract way. But actually, they know more equitable than in any country, other capitalist country that I know. So given that fact, they're not all that enthused about the ideological aspects of it at all. In fact, I don't believe the Chinese people are ideological, not seriously so, however much they can be mouthed. Ultimately, they're more interested in the system that protects them, defends them, and will make them more wealthy and more powerful in the end. We, we you have attracted uh, today uh, our best modern historians. And so I would like to call on each of them uh, to uh, make a comment, and then if they would like to ask a question. We have um, Mike Tony from Maine. We have uh, Mark Elliott from the Ching, and we have uh, Bill Kirby uh, from the Republican period. So we'll go in uh, chronological order. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, your uh, comment, and uh, if you want to raise some questions. I can't, hear you. I can't hear you. Okay. Is he unmuted? Mark, is he unmuted? How about now? Okay, okay. All right, sorry about that. I think we were both hitting unmute simultaneously. Uh, Professor Wang Wang Wong, thank you so much uh, for such a thought-provoking talk. Um, it's such an honor to host you uh, here at Harvard. Uh, we wish we could do it in person, but, but this will, will have to do. Uh, Ezra left out, I think, one minor detail in your uh, uh, biography, uh, and so it falls to me to wish you a belated happy birthday. Uh, you, have, you have already uh, outlived Confucius by 18 years, so we don't know what Confucius would say he was doing at 90, but I think it's a good bet that he would say uh, uh, at 90, I, I, he would say Wang Wu was doing a good job. Um, I dare not add anything to what Confucius said. <laughs> um, it, 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 uh, it, it felt a little bit like a return to the past, um, looking at the, the lack of gender diversity uh, on, the, on the screen. But I see that uh, our interim director, Winnie Yip, has now joined us. It reminds us we need to, we need to try hard on this issue. Um, so it's my job, it falls to me to, to, I suppose, pose a question about the Ming, but you only actually mentioned the Ming in two sentences, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm gonna ask a slightly different question. You, you talked uh, a little bit in your presentation about the very fruitful exchange between scholars from China and scholars from the United States, uh, including Philip Kuhn and Paul Cohen and so on in, uh, 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 presenting new, new approaches to, to how we think about uh, whether Chinese history is linear or, or cyclical. 
in a, in, a, in a piece that she published a few days ago, you used the term pluralist sinology. Uh, and I think that that really describes what, what you were talking about today. Um, I'm frankly very worried, and I think a lot of us uh, here today are very worried that we may be moving away from a pluralist sinology towards what we might call a decoupled sinology. Uh, simply by virtue, not as an intellectual move, but simply by virtue of larger political shifts. And so my question for you is, what should we be saying uh, to political leaders, both in the United States and in China, about the merits of a pluralist sinology? It's easy for political leaders in both countries to see the benefits of a decoupled sinology, where the different uh, uh, scholars in, in the two countries serve the political agendas of the leadership. But what's the argument to the leaders of our two countries for the utility and benefit of continuing and promoting and maintaining this wonderful uh, uh, pluralist sinology that you and, and many of the faces I see on this call uh, have devoted so much of our lives to. Thank you. Thanks for that. Very, that's a very, very good question indeed. Actually, you use, you use the word decoupled. I've hesitated to use it. Um, the reason for, for, for why I hesitated is because I believe that nobody actually wants a decoupled uh, uh, Sinology or decoupled history. Uh, in fact, the Chinese actually accepted that there is a, a universal history. By the beginning of the 20th century, they, they were very much thinking along those lines. If you look at all the historians throughout the 20th century, whether they were nationalists, uh, bourgeoisie, or uh, Stalinist, Maoist, they all accepted there's, there's one history. They may not agree about how that history uh, is explained or, or understood, but they accepted that there's only one history for all of us. And that uh, the only argument was, uh, and I think this has been, this is that's very old, whether it's Eurocentric or Sinocentric, there's that argument. But it was never decoupled, it was simply an argument about how, your starting point, how you look at that history. But there was no need to decouple it. And the decoupling actually comes from, I would say, power differences, power rivalries. That's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not among the historians, nor even among the political leaders in their own normal thinking. But it, when it, they talk about decoupling between two rival systems and the future and the threats to one another, if you put it in those terms, then the word decoupling, of course, comes up. It's like the, the trade war is what I think led to us to use the, the term decoupling more and more, and, uh, and, and the decoupling of technologies and what, what that would mean to all of us. But I think there is, a, you're right to say that there is now use of the word, the idea of decoupling in, his, in history, which is, I think, in, interesting. And it comes really from the most obvious differences right at the beginning. I remember as a young student, one of the books that influenced me a great deal when I was starting off uh, was Rupert Emerson's book From Empire to Nation. Uh, it's a political scientist book, it's not a history, but what it what he described was when all these empires were decolonizing, 
and all the emperors' empires, as with the, the, the nationalists, uh, imperialists, went home, the rest of us became nations. And, and 150 nations came out of the dozen or so empires of, of the previous century. So suddenly we are now a world of nations. And in fact, the whole ideal, the post-war ideal was there will be a family of nations, all equal, like, like individuals equal before the eyes of God. It's, it's that kind of ideal. We, obviously untrue, but nevertheless as an ideal, as a system of a, a way of legal protection of the, the small and the weak nations, very welcome to all the small ones. The big ones, of course, not so happy, so they had some reserve powers and so on. But you can see that the empire to nation stage was a crucial stage. And this is what I think is worrying the Chinese. Because what happened was, as you know, the, the Chinese uh, Republic of China in 1912 inherited the Qing Empire. And the reasons for that are very complex. I won't go into that. But it, it was something that was necessary because Nobody would recognize Sun Yat-sen's Nanjing government because it, it was not, it didn't control the whole empire. Whereas the, all the embassies in Beijing would recognize the Qing emperor and hence its handover to Yuan Shikai that allowed the abdication to occur so that it was legitimately seen internationally as legitimately handed over Qing power to the Republic of China. Now, having done that, you have now created a Republic of China is given a border. This set of border, not totally accepted, as you know, the Mongols immediately broke away. And I think the Tibetans assumed they were, they were different. But nevertheless, internationally, the map of Qing, the Qing map was adopted as a map of the Republic of China. And this is now a sovereign nation in the eyes, in the international language, as well as in the eyes of the Chinese. They're a sovereign nation. This is one state. But ever since then, from day one, Mongolia and Japanese and Russian ambitions in Manchuria, Russian ambitions in Turkestan, Anglo-Russian rivalries in the great game over Tibet, as well as Xinjiang, all that immediately made this idea of a sovereign nation state called the Republic of China a big question mark, already challenged from the beginning. But nevertheless, all that time, every nation including the United Nations, recognized the borders of China, never questioned it. But all that time, without stop, there were efforts to undermine it. It started with the Japanese in Manchuria, with obvious ones. The Russians were all over the place in the Tsarist. And even the communists, when they abandoned the idea for a little while, before long, they were intervening in exactly the similar sort of way. And the British passed on the tradition to the Indians to take on the responsibility of Tibet. And that has created a series of problems down to the present. So you can see from the beginning, the Chinese were never free from the idea that this transition from empire to nation did not apply to China. That somehow, Republic of China was the empire of China. And this, I think, is a threat on China all the time. So even the question of Taiwan is actually seen in that larger context. Because in 1945, Taiwan was put part of that sovereign state. It, again, recognized by everybody till 1971, until, uh, until uh, the PRC became part of the United Nations and Taiwan was kept separate and, and, and no longer. But even then, internationally, all the countries have recognized the People's Republic of China, except that the borders of China include Taiwan. 
with a few exceptions. Now, all these are, the Chinese say, what, do mean, what does it mean? You say we are a sovereign state with a border except internationally accepted, and yet all that time, every effort is made to try and undermine it and undo it, unravel it, as it were, and carve it up again. And this is something that has been a threat from day one, or, or, or I say from 1912 down to the present. It, I don't think the Chinese can get around it. And to them, this is because that single universal history, which is Eurocentric, has rewritten the whole of history in terms of empires and nations for the modern times. And everything has got to fit into, if you're not an empire anymore, but we are nation state. If your nation state still looks like an empire, something is wrong, we must break it up. Now, if that is the, if that is the logic and regarded as legitimate logic to change the, the conditions on the ground, the Chinese must feel terribly threatened all the time. And this, Taiwan is an obvious case because this is a singularly uh, distinctive case, but they're all related. And, and to the Chinese say, this will never end. And the way it is building up today, even more so, every moment of the day, the threat is on. Every item, every day in the newspapers, there's something or other which really suggests that the bits of China, we shouldn't be part of China. And that's, that's constant. And I don't think it really has stopped. Now, that is decoupling in fact, if not even in, in theory, already a kind of decoupling. How could the Chinese accept a world historical, a, a, a world history, a new world history, which allows that to happen as something legitimate and even good? It is humane, it's humanitarian, it is protection, it protect, it's an intervention, protective interventionism. All that becomes justified in legal terms, international law terms, and all this it simply increases the pressure on the Chinese to say something is wrong. How can we go on like that? So your, your word decoupling, I think comes out of that. It's no longer a trade war question. It's so deep now, it goes back to this question of linking your deep-rooted past to a new world order. How can you reconcile the two? And uh, Mark Elliott is, as you know, someone who's done a lot of work on the Qing and also on the Manchu role in the Qing. Uh, Mark? Thank you, uh, Ezra and uh, Professor Wong. Uh, it's good to see you. Thank you again so much for joining us uh, this morning or this evening, depending on where you are. There's so much here to talk about. Uh, I'm having a hard time uh, deciding how to frame this, but uh, I mean, you've, you've talked about the, the Qing History Project, the Qing, the Qing Shi Gong which as you point out was begun nearly 20 years ago and we have yet to see uh, any uh, of the uh, many pages that were certainly written um, but have yet to be published. Uh, and the reasons for that are reasons that, uh, I mean, there's lots that we could say about that, but I'm, actually, I think I'm gonna ask you to say a little bit more about, about the China challenge and about the role of, of uh, overseas Chinese. Because this is a, something about which you have written a lot and you've lived that life uh, yourself. So you mentioned the China challenge as a challenge for the United States, uh, a challenge for, uh, you know, for Japan, I suppose, for Europe, for, uh, for, for many places. 
Would you agree that the China challenge, I mean, it sounds to me as if you would, the China challenge is also a challenge for China, trying to understand um, where it is in, in its history right now. And we're in the middle of another process, it seems to me anyway, and you, I think you were alluding to this, another process of reimagining what, what China is. And I have the very same trouble as you when I talk about China in Chinese, what word do I use? It's, it's so context dependent. It's always, that's another kind of a China challenge, I guess. Um, but if we look in the past, and I was just reading again um, your 2013 book, Renewal, um, in which in the very end, you, you offer a really interesting uh, survey of the role that overseas Chinese played in the reimagining of China in the early 20th century. You, and you talk about people whose intellectual profiles are not so unlike your own, people like Hu Hongming and others as well. Um, and my question for you is, uh, and we see that we, you mentioned Marx, so Marx was obviously important in the reimagination of China in 1949. Um, clearly the pressures are great to make this reimagination work. You've alluded to some problems with that. What role do you see that overseas Chinese or outside forces might play in helping this in, in this instance of a reimagining of, uh, of, uh, of China, of addressing this, this China challenge. The Mongols helped make it, remake China once, the Manchus did it, Marx did it. What's, it's often an outside force that comes in to, to shape things in very fundamental ways. What is that outside force right now? What role do, over, is it overseas Chinese? Is it uh, students who've done their education abroad and have come back? I'm just curious to know, do you have any thoughts on this? That's a, that's a, a lot of lot of questions there. Uh, I have to say that uh, in a way I can I can't handle this except to say how much has changed. What has changed? The idea of overseas Chinese has changed so many times. It's so confusing, partly because of that. I mean, it began when they were they were orphans. Nobody in China cared about the overseas Chinese. I mean, the Ming and Qing. I couldn't care less. I mean, to them, they were illegal immigrants. And they, they ran away from home. They're not Puxiao, Puqing, Putong, Puxiao. So why do you care about them? Whatever happened to them, they get killed or intermarry, uh, get absorbed and assimilated by others. What does it matter to us? We've got plenty of people anyway. We won't miss them. I think that for a long time, that, that was it. And it was not until then, again, Interesting now, this comes back to the ultimate challenge for the Chinese is that it had to be something from outside. I mean, the, 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 when the Chinese were asked about when the Chinese got massacred in Manila, or when they were massacred in Java and Batavia, uh, the Chinese emperor basically said, well, you know, too bad, you know, regret, sorry to hear that, but so, so, so what, 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 what's it going to do with us kind of thing? That, that's what it was. And yet it was in the 19th century with the opening of China. And then suddenly swarms of Chinese went out, largely encouraged by the external forces as labor, as, uh, you know, as coolies, as entrepreneurs, as uh, gold rush uh, <laughs> adventurers, all directions. And the 
They were all sailing not on, no longer in Chinese junks in great danger of traveling in good Western ships. The British uh, sea, uh, ship steamers were taking them all over the world and not only British, uh, others and, and traveling in, uh, in much better, safe, safer condition, but they went everywhere. And, and the Chinese um, didn't know what to do to begin with. Uh, at the beginning, they, they, the question arose, this is not proper, they challenged it. But in the end, they recognized that, you know, they discovered, I think it was some, a very famous report, I think I've forgotten which ambassador it was, a minister to, to Britain passed to Singapore and the Malay states and reported that these guys are rich. They are entrepreneurs and in, in Indonesia, in, in Batavia and in Manila, you know, they're pretty rich, they got money and the Chinese are very poor. And these guys should be asked to invest in China. And they are also very, many of them are very modern. They understood about modern capitalism. They knew about finance, they knew about investments and they understood the West, uh, Western styles of doing things, knew a lot about Western law. They should be encouraged to help us develop uh, uh, China in their hometowns at least. And then, of course, the opening of the treaty ports brought some, many of them back. Some of the famous shops, as you remember, the shipping, shopping malls in Shanghai were created by a bunch of Australian Chinese. And they, and they, they, they uh, I forgot, suddenly, sincere company, and, and there lots of them to Hong Kong, to the treaty ports, they were coming back. And they were showing how not only had the money and the skills, they also had tremendous entrepreneurship tremendous networks out there. And the Qing government took, paid, paid, paid attention. They started to send out consul generals and, and establish connections. And the Chinese, of course, welcomed them because at that time, there was no clear idea of what is nationality. I mean, that is why this word nation is a, is a, real, uh, is a real distraction for all of us because it really is a post-1945 uh, uh, creature. Before that, all the nations were all in Western Europe. And there were only a small number of them. And, but now after 1945, it became a global thing. And the whole world is struggling to decide what, to, to find out what it means, and what the responsibilities of each nation is and what, how each nation should deal with each other. And applying this international law invented after the Congress of Vienna to apply to everybody has actually confused people more than helped. Because people are just trying to learn how does it work for us? Since we only started after 1945, how does it work for us? And in, in any case, many of the principles of international law were based on Christian civilization. It was actually defined as such because it was among Christian nations and non-Christian nations were actually only reluctantly accepted in the 20th century as being part of the international system with the League of Nations, thanks to America with the League of Nations and then the United Nations. So this is also very new. So the idea of overseas Chinese, you know, what were they? I mean, theoretically, they were, they were stateless. They didn't belong to anywhere. The Qing, Qing government never recognized them officially, not until 1893, where the, official, the ban was lifted and it was officially recognized that they were Chinese citizens of some kind. And it was not until 1909 that the, the law was passed in China, that, that this uh, Jewish Sanguinis law, which said anybody born of a Chinese father, Chinese father, not even mother, a Chinese father was a Chinese. And that's as, as late as 1909. So what do we mean by always Chinese? There's no such concept. The real, the beginnings of it, that's why some people trace it to Sun Yat-sen. 
It's, a, it's linked up with the beginning of Chinese nationalism. That Sun Yat-sen needed help. And when Xing Zhonghui in Hawaii, I mean, oh, we are all Chinese. And uh, you always say Chinese, you are, you are just Chinese. And therefore we have the right to fight for our cause for the Chinese cause and throw out the damn Manchus, you know, and that, that's the kind of language they use, which are very popular among the Southerners, Fujian and Guangdong people, particularly, that many of them were, very, unfortunately, suffered under the Qing. They probably would have suffered under the Ming, but they've forgotten that, but they suffered under the Qing and they remembered that, and it was this damn Manchus, we got to get rid of them. So Sunat Sen made a lot of headway. Kang Wei, when he fell off, he made a lot of headway among the Chinese. Although he, they were not anti-Manchu so much as for a, a stronger and a China to can protect it. So the, there were really the variety of motives behind why certain Chinese supported what was happening in China and certain other Chinese couldn't care less what was happening in China. Then we were abandoned anyway, so what do we care? So there were already the divisions were clear. But as the Chinese nationalism progressed, it became clearer to some Chinese that there were advantages in being recognized as Chinese. Having a Chinese nationality gave you some advantages for doing business in China, to going back to China, and to be, to be respected as a, a citizen of this country called the Republic of China. So the nationalism added to that, and the introduction of modern Chinese schools among the overseas Chinese right across the board after, after the Republic of China, led by the Kuomintang, the Sun Yat-sen followers, that was tremendous. The modern Chinese schools that were introduced into China were introduced at roughly the same time among all overseas Chinese, probably a few years later, not much more than that. So it was almost simultaneously, nationalism in China and the, the modern schools in the, among the overseas Chinese, and they were linked together. The Ministry of Education in, in Nanjing under the Kuomintang directly supervised and in fact encouraged more and more schools to be developed. My father was one of those, encouraged to go out and teach the Hua Chao Chinese. And that was a mission, almost a mission, to enable those Chinese to identify with China again and feel proud to be Chinese and know how to become a Chinese. Some even forgotten. They didn't have the language, they didn't have no knowledge of why, where these customs come from, very vague idea of certain practices, but didn't know what it meant. So now go out and teach them, encourage them to link up, not only with the state of China, to all the heritage, again, the heritage of 2000 years of classics and, and all that. Now, all that was consciously done in the 20th century. It began slightly with the consul generals, like people like Huang Zunxian and you know, who went around in Japan and elsewhere. A few small schools started under Kang Wei, but it was not until the modern schools were introduced after May 4th. Then of course, they brought in, uh, this is the unfortunate part, which at that time nobody predicted. What it also brought was the division between the nationalists and the communists. Within a few years of these schools being established, already the school teachers were divided into those who were pro Kuomintang and those who were pro Kuomintang. And when they were together, and then when they split after 1927, it became a fierce thing in the schools, in every school in Southeast Asia, there were divisions. And then the, then the Ministry of Education would intervene and make quite sure to clean out the communists and they asked for colonial government to support them. The colonial government would actually, on the whole, side with the nationalists against the communists under those conditions. And the politicizing of Chinese education abroad 
among the Chinese education was begun then. It had nothing to do with anything, nothing to do with business, or it was the politics of China brought to the schools and to the journalism as well. The newspapers also took side. Sun Yat-sen had his own newspaper, Kang Yu-wei had his own set of newspapers, and they fiercely, fiercely debated. Every day they would argue among themselves. So this has been going on. So this is a new, completely new phase, which politicized almost all the Chinese who cared about China at all. Those who didn't care, of course, were assimilated, but those who were not began to be identified with either one side or the other. And 1949, they sided with either Kuomintang or communists for another 20 or 30 years until Taiwan became more and more Taiwanese and un-Chinese un in the eyes of many obviously Chinese. Then they shifted and now they simply either don't care or they look to material progress, uh, future progress again, dealing with China, the business and economic benefits of dealing with China. And given the kind of developments that China has been through the last 40 years, it is understandable how powerful that has grown. I mean, it was very minor to begin with. To begin with, it was Chinese welcoming them, encouraging them to come to help China. And some of them, of course, took advantage and made money out of it all. The Chinese say, you made money out of us, so go, come on, go on helping us. So that's, that was part of the deal. The next stage, of course, is to say, well, we are now very much together. Our networks are so closely locked. I mean, your interests and our interests are hardly separable. Now, that's another stage. Now, that's one side of it. That's to do with the so-called overseas Chinese of the past, the old Huacha. Now we're dealing with something totally different, about up to 20 million Xin Yimin scattered around the world. These are people who left since the 1980s. And they are not the same kind of people at all. These are people who are educated. Most of the, many of them university educated, many of them very much part of businesses, state, maybe state or state owned enterprises or private enterprises in China sent out to develop business interests and so on. And many are of course government officials, but this is a, and part of them are just senior who went out privately and private enterprises and settled there. And now they're, but they're out there. And the Chinese have now relooked the whole thing. And recently they passed on the whole of the Xiaoban material. All that responsibility has been now taken over by the United Front Department of the, of the Communist Party. Now that is a new stage altogether. As I said, we are observing changes all the time. So as the Chinese themselves would say, when change, things change, you have to change accordingly and rethink your, all your relationships accordingly. So what next? I do not know, but you've got to watch those changes and try and see what those changes actually mean on the ground. Imposing your time limits, but I'd like to call on Bill Kirby, a uh, Republican period uh, historian whom you know well. Uh, Bill, your comment and question. Sure, thank you. Thank you, Ezra and Professor Wong. Thank you for a wonderful evening. Uh, we would listen to you all night and all day tomorrow, uh, however much time you have. It's been a, a, just an extraordinary pleasure. Um, just one, one comment and one kind of question. Uh, one comment is that you said, I think quite rightly, uh, kind of the, you, you, you articulated the great insecurity of the modern Chinese nation state faced with this challenge of defending the territory of, of the Qing that it inherited from the Qing, and it has been a challenge 
at various times in the 20th century. One of the things that puzzles me a lot today is how is it, you know, the, the People's Republic of China today arguably has no enemies in the sense no one threatens Chinese territory. Put aside the question of Taiwan for the moment, but no one threatens Chinese territory, not Russia, not Japan, not Vietnam, not even India. Uh, the only threat to Chinese territory that I can see in a physical sense comes from North Korea because you never know where one of their missiles might land. Uh, so um, why nevertheless, this extraordinary and enduring sense of insecurity? I mean, we're, we're in the longest period of war, peace since the Opium War from 1979 to the present, which is the foundation of China's prosperity today, and yet this pervasive sense of insecurity. That's just a puzzle to me. But you know, I just wanted to ask you in some sense on the question of the, the ideas that you articulated in their modern transformation, thinking of the roles of scholars and modern universities, another part of your life. You know, I think it was uh, Professor John Tingfu uh, chairman of the history department at Tsinghua University, who really invented the idea of jindaishir. Uh, and jindaishir is a, is a concept, modern history, that comes from an interpretation of mo modern China's foreign relations. And he wrote what is still today, arguably one of the best books in the history of modern, China, modern China's foreign relations. And did, he he invent did he invent the term? I think he's the first to use it in a, in a, in a, in a way that would be adopted broadly, certainly by historians, because it's the first general survey of modern Chinese history. And he was, of course, the teacher of some of our teachers, my teacher anyway, John Fairbank uh, at Tsinghua University, where Fairbank learned his Chinese history. So it's maybe no accident that Fairbank too took on uh, this uh, chronological division of Chinese history. But I just wanna ask you, you're, you're not only a great historian, of course, but you are the very model of a modern scholar official. Uh, you were president of Hong Kong University for a decade, one of the world's great universities, but a university also uh, in, uh, was uh, an heir to multiple historical traditions. That university, when you were president, had a department of history, and it also had another department of Chinese history who almost never met together um, uh, really quite, a, quite an interesting place. I remember visiting it in those days. How did, you, how did your experience at HKU help to shape your understanding of the articulation of these modern historical issues? And second, uh, how do you see Hong Kong today in the context of the issues that you have laid out in this wonderful lecture? The question, of course, came from somebody who's had administrative experience in the university administration. So you understand the issue. Yeah. So thank you so much for your talk again. Good question. It has some small historical footnote behind it. The University of Hong Kong started as a very much like a colonial university. It didn't, it didn't call itself that, but that's, that's what it was. So history was very much Western history. And uh, the there's no Department of Chinese History. There's a Department of Chinese. And the Chinese, of course, is in the classical tradition of Wen Shi Zhe, Chinology. So it was Han Xue. In fact, I think one of the earliest uh, people they, they got to uh, head the Department of Chinese was, a, was himself a Zhu Ren, 
uh, who almost became a Jinsu, but the Jinsu exam he missed out when the examinations ended. But it was a very Li something, Li Shiren, I think. He was a Juren, very, very well known Guangdong uh, scholar, but in the absolutely great tradition of Wen Shizhe. And the department was founded that way. In fact, uh, I think the first European to head it was uh, Drake, uh, who came from Shilu Dashi in Shandong. And he was also a very much a sinologist in the tradition of people like Homer Dobbs and, and that generation. And, uh, and Chen Ying Ke, for example, Chen Ying Xue, oh, he was very much seen at that way. A sinologist with Western understanding of Western sinology as well, very much traditional Westerner. You, you can't call him just a historian. He's, he's everything. So that's the tradition that the Department of Chinese started with and remained very proud of. And the history department started as a Western history department. And when the two were asked to talk to each other, as you say, and they didn't, they simply drew a line. The line was the history department would do only modern history, Jin Daishi. Nothing after 1800, uh, nothing before 1800, thereabouts. In fact, they had one member of staff who worked on the 1790s. That's, that's as, as close as you could get. And the Chinese department, all ancient history came under the Department of Chinese, Wen Shizhe, and they did no modern history, or very few, again, a few people on the edges did some modern history. It stopped more or less about 1800, uh, or maybe up to the Qing dynasty. They, re they recognized the Qing dynasty, so that's it. So that, when I went there, it was very firmly entrenched. They had demarcated the boundaries, very clear. There was peace. I didn't want to start a war. I just left them alone. I suggested that the history department, the history students were too shallow because they didn't have an ancient history. And they acknowledged that, but did nothing. And uh, the Chinese department uh, would like to do modern history, but were reminded that there was a deal. They don't do modern history. Modern history is left to the history department. So that's, that's where the, the line. So you can see as an example also of changing occurrence, but also negotiating, renegotiating the changes. And this one didn't work. They didn't renegotiate. They just continued to this day. And so I, I matter of regret, but uh, I respect academic professionalism. So that's it. <laughs> if that's what they want, that's it. So be it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier in your uh, lecture, the name of Paul Cohen, whom we now See on the screen. Paul, do you want to have a word of greeting with uh, Gung Wu? I'll be fine. I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Can you see Paul going? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I saw Paul. Yeah, Paul. Good to see you. Paul, just can you push this button so Paul can speak? Can you speak, Paul? Huh? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes. I can. I don't know what happened to me. I got sort of lost. Uh, um, you found Professor Wong. I uh, I, I won't go uh, through all, all of what I was going to say, but I do want to raise one um, one question, um, and that has to do with uh, in the twenty first century. Uh, you have the advent of a period which we are currently in, uh, in which China has in certain respects again become a model for the West to emulate and compete against, uh, as in the 18th century. Um, 
For example, in the area of infrastructural improvements, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, the extensive introduction throughout China of bullet trains, rapid economic development, and dramatic expansion of Chinese political and economic influence over a vast area stretching from East Asia to Europe. The BRI, uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative launched by Xi Jinping in 2013, has been referred to as a modern analog of the ancient Silk Road that arose during the westward expansion of the Han Dynasty, which forged, trades net, net, forged trade work, work networks throughout what are today uh, such Central Asian countries as Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, not to mention the modern day India and Pakistan to the south. The dramatic expansion of economic, Chinese economic potential has been accompanied by enormous improvements in the lives of hundreds of millions of Chinese who have in a relatively brief stretch of time emerged out of extreme poverty into a literate, educated middle class. Most recently, we see this rapid economic expansion. Can you conclude your question quickly? We're a little over time, so I want you okay. to... Um, What has uh, emerged in the past uh, century um, and more uh, is a new, new world order. To the extent that this trend continues to develop, one interesting question arises. Is it possible that as global collaboration becomes stronger, a world divided into nation states, their populations deeply patriotic, will gradually give way to a single world order, the inhabitants of which have learned to accept the existence of certain problems like climate change or the exploration of space, or for that matter, periodic pandemics that affect all of the world's populations and can be most effectively dealt with only by wholehearted cooperation and collaboration. That's the question that I would like to pose uh, to you, Professor Wong. How would you estimate the chances of such a new, new world order coming into existence? Should the United Nations be transformed into something else with less emphasis on nations and more on humanity? Would such a transformation, even if desirable, ever be a live possibility? The competition between China and the United States with its apparent emphasis on spheres of influence, an old friend, seems to suggest that the world isn't quite ready for such serious collaborative effort. But I wonder what you think we need to do to get there. My, my first response to this very profound question is that uh, uh, I, I, I recognize that that was the sort of thing that I might think if I got out of the bed on the right side in one of my optimistic uh, mornings. Uh, the other thing is to say that uh, I recognize and admit I'm very much a creature of the 20th century. And I'm not sure that I'm quite into the 21st century yet about this highly uh, uh, 
universal global problems because I'm still very much, and partly because I'm obsessed with history now, that uh, very much caught up with this, something that I explained earlier on, my, my, my fascination with the Chinese struggle with this question of a transition from empire to nation that is now troubling them. But it is also troubling to us. I mean, in my part of the world now, where I am at the moment, where Malaya and Sing Malaysia, Singapore, and all, all these countries have been struggling with their borders and trying to make nations out of uh, a mixture of people who, who do not know what it means to be a nation or really are trying to use the Western definition and fit it in somehow. And that, that's the kind of struggle people are. So I, I'm still very much because of my things I read, very much a creature of the 20th century. And the 21st century does frighten me a lot. And uh, not because I, I, I have no hope about the kind of things that you're talking about, the, you know, another ideal world that we, we need to have. But because I, I just feel that uh, the, there are certain, that the pace of change of uh, various things are not, they, they don't seem to me anyway coordinated in any way. For example, again, it's partly my old age, that the technological changes are simply too fast for most of the people I know. I mean, most people I know are really foxed. What to do? What, are, what, is it, what is going on? I'm just a technical, every day something is happening that we don't know much about. We've been told, do this, do this. They tell us which buttons to push and so on. But basically we're just doing that. It's like the way when, as, a, as a child of the 20, 20th century, the way I learned about a car, I have no idea how a car works. All I know is how to drive it. And I'm taught how to drive it to get a license. That's all I'm taught. And after that, that's what I do with my car. But actually, because it is still at a pace that I can manage, I've learned to understand it. But the technological change of the 21st century are at a pace that I'm just not a clue how, how, how things are, how fast things are changing. And I, I hear my grandchildren talk about things which I have no idea what they're talking about. And to them, they're taking it quite naturally. So I, I wish them luck, but I'm not the person to try and understand that. I, I, I frankly have given up. That pace is not my pace. And I'm actually much more comfortable with the 20th century than the 21st. Well, we're very lucky. And uh, the book you wrote is um, Home is uh, Where We Are. And we like to think of you now that we have Zoom that this is one of your homes too. And I think you can see that uh, we all feel that you're very much part of our intellectual life and that we very much appreciate the gifts you've given to all the countries you've served and all the people you served and to all the scholarship uh, that you've supported. And we, as somebody who also has entered the 90th year, uh, I hope we can continue even though you're not the person of this century, something I can understand. I hope you'll continue to make contributions uh, to the new century. Thank you so much for coming, Wangu. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you all for coming. Uh, we kept you almost a half hour beyond our usual time. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye, bye. Bye, bye, bye. Bye-bye.